Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, and step more fully into the essence of who you are. Today, you'll hear from a fantastic guest. She's a creative doctor, believe it or not, and there's just so much insight to share from healing to dating to how to approach medicine creatively and to make time for your other creative passions. She's got so much insight. Before we jump in, I want to just say one thing. If you love the show and it has helped you, please consider leaving it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps bring the show visibility and push it up the charts so that we can help and connect with more creatives. Also, consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guests at Unleash Your Inner Creative and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Now to the guest. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Harper. Michelle is a Harvard grad, ER doctor, author, and overall magical spiritual person. In her recent New York Times bestselling book, The Beauty and Breaking, she tells her story of healing from her childhood and into her medical career. The book addresses her journey to understand and heal from her childhood trauma, as well as her experiences of and observations on structural racism in the healthcare system, both in what she's experienced as a black woman working in healthcare and how she's seen the system adversely affect her patients. Despite the many challenges, she does what she has always felt called to do, heal herself and others as much as she possibly can. I really wanted to have her on the podcast because she's proof that you can take a creative approach to any profession. The way that Michelle practices medicine is creative and innovative in and of itself. And on top of that, she's such a gifted writer and so committed to her spiritual practice and yoga. And she's just creative in so many different ways. From our conversation, you'll learn the connection between failure and growth, the difference between love and codependence, how to find compassion through healing trauma, how to overcome fear of commitment, and why there's beauty in breaking. Now here she is, Dr. Michelle Harper. So you've written this beautiful book, and I'm curious, what was the first knock at your soul's gate to say, hey, Michelle, you have something in there. We want you to bring it out. And did you listen? What was your reaction to that first knocking from spirit? So with the book, the first knock was in residency, specifically interactions I'd have with patients that just stayed with me. Initially, clearly I, did, I didn't listen because I didn't start the book at any time. My residency program was four years. I didn't start it during those four years. But it stayed with me because I kept having interactions that I felt I needed to explore for the sake of that one interaction, but also what it represents in more global terms. Like the woman who was brought into the emergency department, covered in small cuts all over her body. So this woman was in her 30s or near 40. Her ex-partner assaulted her and took the time to stab her all over her body to the point where she wouldn't die. None of them were fatal, but that so she would suffer. And I thought to myself in that moment, what brought them there? I mean, how cruel and sadistic, certainly. How did they meet what happened, what happened in their lives so that this was even possible? And now this woman who is my patient, who I'm taking care of, how will she recover? 
I mean, certainly her body physically will be scarred for the rest of her life. But what about the other wounds, the deeper scars that brought her to that relationship? And now she'll have to recover from that much more trauma. So I I thought about these experiences and I thought about how we all have our wounds and how is it, can we heal and help each other to heal? So it kept knocking, knocking, knocking for that reason. And then finally, uh, a couple years after residency, I started writing. And what was that inciting incident to say, okay, I'm going to take pen to paper. Now's the time. That's such a good question. That's the first time I've been asked that question. And there, there was, there was the moment I decided to do it because I was now full-fledged doctor, attending physician, finished my training. I mean, training never really ends, but my formal education, I finished. And I was still searching for purpose. I loved and still love being a clinician and helping my patients one-on-one, but I felt like there's more. And so I thought about, well, maybe I could have a complementary and alternative medicine center. And I talked about some of the barriers to forming that in, in Philadelphia and not getting institutional support at some places I worked for that either. And I just, ideas kept not working. And I thought, well, wait a second, I did want to write a book. So I hired an editor to work with me because Yes, I went to school, but beyond that, I didn't major in English or literature. I don't have a master's in this. So I thought, well, this is a good time for me to work on my writing. And since I'm working on my writing, I should do that book project thing I've been thinking about all this time. So that's how it happened. And I kind of love that it happened because I was searching and nothing else worked. And I, I do feel like I was guided in that way, like divinely guided that spirit said to me, you can't keep ignoring this. Guess what? We're kind of going to shut the other door. So you have to open this one. And then it worked out. (laughs) So it sounds like you were in flow. Yeah. What did that feel like? I will tell you at that time, it didn't feel like flow. Mm. It, it It felt like a lot of disappointment. And I had to turn inward and I had to ask myself, okay, well, what kind of person am I? And I'm not the kind of person to give up. What am I missing? What's the message here? So it was a practice of me remaining open and sensitive and receptive. So then when I did that, you're right. Then it started to shift. And as I was writing, oh yeah, there was so much flow. It was such, it was a beautiful process for me, meditative, hard. I mean, when I spoke about certain instances, the end of my marriage, which I thought I was over and I was, But as I wrote about it and relived it, I found there was just like a a little corner of a little bit more pain. And the the breakup with the more recent ex, Colin, that was very hard. So reliving some of those experiences, I mean, I literally, when I was writing that piece, you know, the book took years to write. And then once it was signed, it was a year of editing, like eight months waiting for the release. So still almost two years from the end of the book. Well, when I was writing that piece, it was contemporaneous. Like I I was recovering from the breakup as it was happening. (laughs) That's a lot. But still, it was such a gift and it was still flow. And as I was writing that part about Colin, I literally had to stop. There was a couple of weeks I couldn't write at all as I continued to heal from the process through the writing and walking meditation and doing yoga and sitting meditation. But one thing I do want to highlight 
about that process of deciding to write the book, coming to that point. And I came to that point after what I felt like were a lot of many failures about goals I had. I'm so appreciative that it happened that way. It was such an important lesson for me because growth often looks like that in the moment. In the moment, it can look like failure. It can look like a relationship ending, losing a job or realizing one has to leave a job, being scrappy and figuring out, okay, well, how am I going to afford my life as I follow my purpose? What will that look like? And not knowing at all how it will look. So I, I am grateful that it evolved in that way because I think it revealed deep truths to me about life at that time. Mm. You mentioned healed a few times just now, and you are a healer yourself. And something that I've talked about a lot in the podcast and that I've really contemplated in my own life is like, can we ever truly fully heal from something that happened to us? Or is it just a constant, ooh, that kind of rubbed up against something there that I thought was all closed up. I thought that wound was stitched up, but now I'm, I'm feeling that it's still a little open. Do you think that we can fully heal from things that happen to us in our lives, both spiritually and obviously physically as well? Fully, fully, fully. I'm, I'm sitting with that word fully because I do feel it's a practice. I'm, I'm thinking about my experiences as I answer that question. And for example, I start the book discussing experiences growing up in an abusive household with a father who's a batterer. And how, as I got older, because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't understand, even adolescent, even young adulthood, I was processing all that. Life gave me the opportunity. I mean, I thought I had done so much work. I mean, reading about batterers, reading about, but literally like going to libraries, because this was like the time before internet. I just dated myself, but it's true. <laughs> you don't look like you're from before internet. So there you go. <laughs> Going to libraries, reading about violence against women, uh, structural bigotry, like how this all happens, how it's allowed. So I, d- I did a lot of work in that respect. And then life says, okay, well, now you're going to meet this guy, Colin, who has a lot of undigested trauma. And it's going to start off great. And then he'll start kind of reliving his trauma with you from having an absent father who then died when he was relatively young, a mother who was abusive to him, getting divorced from a woman who was like his mother, but maybe worse. Like, so there's a lot for him to deal with. And then during our relationship, him reenacting those patterns with me unwittingly. And then me stepping back, making space so that I can just watch the situation and ask myself, wait a second, who am I and what am I doing? Didn't I learn this? Like, didn't I think about my my parents' relationship? And this was a little more subtle because it wasn't so obvious. Like Colin wasn't physically abusive, like, or financially, you know? So it was life saying to me, did you learn that lesson? Are you sure? And if you did, who are you and what is it you choose? And so then I stepped away. So yes, Mm. I had grown, I had healed, but there were more levels. I never played video games. I feel like it was like, okay, you're the next, next challenger level now. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's how I feel too. They, they say a uh, new level, new devil. And I think that's true. I think you learn the lesson and life's like, good, great. You learned it. I'm going to give you another opportunity just to make sure, you know, and you keep thinking like, this isn't going to happen again, <laughs> but then it does. And that's okay. It resonated so much with me reading the part of the book where you talked about Colin, because it's very similar to my previous relationship of seven years. There is this part where you talked about like how your trauma was like commingling with his trauma and making this like trauma stew. It gave me the image. I think I'm going to write a song about it. I said like our shadows are dancing together. Right. And trauma has legs. Like it doesn't end with the person who experiences it unless that person like amputates the trauma legs so that they don't walk into someone else. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, part of growth is healing, understanding, growing, and then making the choice to continue on that path so we don't keep creating new cycles, reenacting these patterns. It gets to a point where, no, is there going to be, is there going to be another Colin for me? No, no, there's not. Like, I, I feel good. I think I master that. Like, on to the next. You can hold me account. Like, we'll have this conversation five years from now. I'll let you know if, it, if it's still yeah. true. Colin 2.0. Right. But it's just, you know, in, in everything we do and grow, it's, I always say it's like me and yoga. So I love the physical asana of yoga for me. It's such an expansive experience. I mean, in, in the, the physical flexibility for me, learning how to sit with discomfort in some postures, breathing through it and noticing what comes up and not fighting against what comes up but letting it pass or making adjustments so that it is workable and healthier for my body. But I can't do yoga for two weeks and say, good, done, no more. No, it's, like, it's a part of my life in the same way that this healing is part of my life and making better decisions, like the next best decision, the next best move in the moment. And I think that's how healing is. Mm. I love that. A line that you straddle so well that I struggle with is you can find a way to have compassion for someone and also see the truth of who they are. You can really have compassion for a Colin or even your dad and still see the truth of who they are. How have you come to that ability and what's your advice with somebody who's struggling with either like having compassion and then wanting to fix them or having compassion and then hating them? That is a good point. So I always kind of anchor things in example and story, just because I feel like it makes it a little more concrete. One of the examples of that I give in the book is a, a patient who's difficult and comes in with what is at the time appears to be a life-threatening infection in his leg that he got from injecting drugs there. He's very ill and we, we do everything we can. He improves, you know, with IV fluid and very strong antibiotics. We have the surgeon see him in case he needs to have the wound cleaned out surgically as well. We're all set to admit him in the hospital. Meanwhile, this is clearly pre-pandemic stuff I'm talking about because his brother was there with him in the emergency department. His brother is insulting to me and the staff. The patient, once he's feeling well enough, he becomes very disrespectful as well. And I discuss later in that chapter, as I think about it, that we're there to do right by him. And often when we're in those positions, we do what we can, even if the person doesn't want to do right 
by themselves. Mm. And it's not for us, it's not for me to judge. It's not at all. He's a person who needs help, so I want to help him. I have to move past him being insulting and disrespectful. And I also realize that, you know, a person cannot do better for someone else than they can do for themselves. He signs out of the hospital. He walks out because he says there are many things for him to do, like different variations of excuses. But the bottom line is what seems to be the case is that he doesn't feel deserving of healing or help. He doesn't feel deserving of care. That's not where he is in his life. So it's not useful for me to think badly of him. It's not useful for me to hate him. It's useful for me, though, to recognize that. And he's entitled to make his own decisions. I wish him the best. I hope that he can find it within himself to care for himself so that he's at a place where he can receive help, that he loves and respects himself enough to be in that position, that those decisions are up to him. That would be my example of how to straddle that line, like recognize who a person is at the time. Always for me, it's important for me to recognize what could be their potential, but they are who they are. And I recognize the part of within them, their humanity. And then I just leave it at that because it's not personal anyway. Mm. Yes. I mean, the way you describe Colin in the book certainly sounded like a soulmate. Would you agree that he's a soulmate? A. A. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. I, I hear you. I mean, again, like I feel you on that one. I think we have many and I think we have maybe one who's like our best partner, but then others that teach us lessons. Right. What do you think is the point of those relationships with soulmates that don't work out? Like what's God's plan, goddess's plan with that? (laughs) I mean, the the Colin situation was difficult. It was me really getting at the lessons of, do I love myself? Mm. Do I feel I deserve a healthy relationship? What is appropriate and acceptable? Really, what is acceptable for me? And so while it was very difficult and hard, I mean, difficult, it took me a couple years to work through that. But as I work through relationships, I recognize immediately it doesn't have anything to do with the other person. It has to do with me. It has to do with me. No, ultimately, he was not right for me. He was perfect for me in the moment, though, because I needed to learn that. And let me tell you, after having gone through that, I just feel liberated. I trust myself. And I didn't realize that I didn't quite before and going through it. And then, and then when it was over and grieving the relationship and then thinking to myself, oh my God, can I make decisions about relationship? Like maybe if I'd done this much work and then this still happened, maybe I just can't make decisions. Maybe it's not safe for me to pick someone. I mean, I, I went through this in my mind. And so then I decided, okay, I need time off. There will be no dating. Also, I'm really picky. So it's a funny thing for me to say, there will be no dating. There wasn't going to be any dating. (laughs) There will be no dating. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, there's not going to be, I need alone time. Like definitely six months, maybe a year. It's going to be me and Michelle to sort this stuff out. But, and I'll tell you at the end of that process, I just felt free. And I loved myself even more. And I, 
I like myself and I did before, but I like myself yeah. even more. And I trust myself. So I love that we're talking about dating. So my, it's on my mind. So I'm, I'm like gravitating toward those topics. <laughs> there's a woman I know who, um, I was recently, I mean, I have these conversations about dating with people and this woman I know, similar age, single, she was saying she's so scared to be dating again. She is, but she's scared about it because it's so hard and it's heartbreaking and you get invested. And then who knows if you can recover. I have to tell you the point I'm at, because I trust myself in terms of being scared about the emotional peace, I am not. Yeah. Even, even if I fall in love and it doesn't work out, I'm okay. Like I, I'm resilient. So it doesn't scare me to be in a relationship. I just don't have fear about that. A hundred percent. You know, you're touching on some, a big realization I just had about anytime we have a fear of commitment because the fear of commitment that I've realized that I have is all about lack of self-trust. I do love myself and I do like myself. I think that trust piece is the piece that's been missing in my life. And that trust piece is the piece that helps you know when you're in a relationship that's not quite right. To know when you're in some sort of partnership, when it's creative or otherwise, that's not quite right. And to love yourself enough and trust yourself enough to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> and so if you don't trust yourself, of course you're going to have fear of commitment because you think you're going to get entrapped into some situation situation and then not trust yourself enough to exit. Right. So yeah, this is such an important piece. Yeah. And then knowing that I'm going to be okay. Like I'm good. I'm good with myself. I'm not one of these people who fears like, Oh my God, what will I do if I'm just alone for the next, I don't know, five years or whatever. I mean, we're human beings. We need social interactions, but I'm good. So the question or not is, does this person well, no one completes anyone, but do they add to the path? Yes. Enhancements. Are we still, are we, are we good alone? Because if somebody's not good alone, they're not going to be with me. No, there's no way we're going to be good together. So are we good as individuals? And as you said, is the path enhanced as we walk the path together? And that's the question. And, and sometimes these walks are just for a couple blocks. We're supposed to be walking together. Sometimes it's a couple miles. Sometimes it's forever. And however it goes, I'm going to be fine because I am fine. Mm. So speaking of the heart and love, you make a lot of decisions in the book that, I mean, obviously you're a woman of great intellect and so you're thinking of things logically, but ultimately you choose your heart every single time. And there's this one part, I don't remember what hospital you were leaving, but you're like, oh, you didn't get the job promotion because- you know, they didn't promote people of color and they didn't promote women. <laughs> Literally, the, the guy said that to you. He's like, so sorry, you know, half-assed response. And you realize like you were not going anywhere that was leading you toward your heart. So you had to leave with no, no landing, no net to catch you. You just knew you had to do it. So many people are faced with that decision and they still choose to stay in an institution that's crushing them in some way. What's your advice to those people? I'm going to go a couple different places with this because on Please. one hand, I want to acknowledge that at the time, like pre-pandemic, because the job market's very different now, I will say I did have the privilege to leave and there are people who don't. So because I knew there were other jobs and I could go, that's what I did. There are times where that's not feasible. So until our basic needs are met, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, can I buy food? Do I have a roof over my head? 
until those needs are met, it's, it's hard to have that level of autonomy. Right. So, but when we can, right, when we have that privilege, I will say that for me, the only option is to choose, to choose from a place of integrity and alignment, no matter what the relationship is, whether it's a personal relationship, dating, marriage, a work relationship, if it's not based on respect, it will not go well. So if somebody wants me to live a life smaller than the one I envision for myself, it's not going to work. And I have to go. And if I stay, then I am complicit in my depression. Mm. So when I look at it that way, then there's only one answer. Go. Leap. Yeah. And then it'll become clear. I mean, like I said with the book, part of the reason why I'm so happy it happened that way with like doors closed. Again, because progress can initially look like failure or heartbreak. Well, yeah. So my little quote is, the dreams you find on the way to your dreams can sometimes be even more powerful than your original intention. Right. Yeah. And it's something you never saw for yourself. And that from these quote unquote failures, Mm -hmm. we expand. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of which, so you touched on this, how there were a lot of heartbreaking moments where you wanted to create the center, but you were stifled. And, you know, the frustrating thing for me reading the book is that you are such a creative person and such a soulful person and such a whole body, mind, body, spirit person, and that you're having to function within these systems that try to make you into a machine and then try to force you to treat your patients like machines. And so I know you're still working within the system in a lot of ways because you love what you do and you want to be a part of the change. But how do you manage that? By being very creative, figuring out where can I work clinically, where where they'll allow me to make what I feel are the best decisions for my patients. And that sounds really simple. And, And it sounds kind of crazy that I would have to think of wait, where can I work and do right by people? But it's a, it's a big deal in healthcare in America because healthcare in America, sadly, to date, for the most part, there are a few exceptions, but is, is run like private industry where the goal are profits. And there happen to be people involved, but it's really about profits. So, so I have to think about where will they allow me to care and make responsible decisions? I put a lot of time into that consideration. And then how do I optimize my personal passions, my life mission, which is why I wrote this book. I, I continue. Um, I never, I'm a little superstitious. So before something's done, I won't really talk about it, but, but there's other works brewing. And then of course, one day I'll have enough money so I can cut down clinically and spend more time doing the creative. More time brewing. <laughs> exactly. I'm just picturing you there with your creativity, stirring the pot. <laughs> exactly. And one day that pot will have like more money. So then so I have- Yes, it's coming. It's coming. For the creative. And then it's also me not getting so overburdened by the stresses of the Ooh. field, right? Like, how, how? And that's where my self-care, and, and you're right, and this is constant work where, for example, I'm busy because I still work full-time clinically because I have to pay bills. So I'm, I'm working full-time clinically, doing this launch, coming up with the new ideas. I can't travel, of course, because it's the pandemic. So I said, well, why should I have to travel? Like, 
Peace is not somewhere out there. I don't need to go halfway across the country to a different continent for peace. It should be accessible here and now. So like I downloaded this new audio program with Eckhart Tolle and I said, okay, I don't have much time, but I'll have little chunks of time where I listen to segments in this audio book and that'll be my little mini retreat here and now during the winter. So I'm having to be more creative about how I do this so I can take care of myself and still grow and expand spiritually. And that makes it like when I go to my clinical job and have to deal with bureaucracy or even with the book, I didn't even know there were lists for books like over, you know, top this, top that. So I, I found out like, oh my God, I had no idea I was being like set up to be not included on so many lists. <laughs> Find out. You were included, but weren't you included on a couple big ones recently? Wasn't New York Times? Yeah. But yeah, but it's like, it's also intense. Like every world has so many intricacies to it. It's like, could we just have some like universal rules about something? I, it's really funny because it felt like, no, I speak about my book. I don't really do online dating, but, but my brief interaction with online dating and like the weird ways you can be rejected on different platforms. And so it felt like, with these book lists, someone had signed me up for online dating and I was like getting alerts. Hey, hey, you've been rejected. You've been... <laughs> and it was hilarious to me. It's just so funny to me that I kind of like talking about it. But, but yes, I am grateful because there were some really great big ones like New York Times, like top uh, 100 and like notable books. So uh, yeah, I'm very, very grateful for it. And the other parts, I just think are kind of funny. <laughs> how do you deal with rejection? Like, how do you get through it? <laughs> well. Just knowing that what is meant for me will come for me, it will be accessible to me, honestly, at the heart. It, it is a little amusing because my answers to questions are all the same. It's like the roots are all the same. Like some of my favorite spiritual teachers, like I talk about Eckhart Tolle all the time, says every book I've written is the same. It's the same. You could probably just read one. And it literally is all the same. So with my spiritual practice and feeling good about myself, well, then, you know, the bells, the whistles, sure, they're nice. It feels really good to win. It feels good to be noticed. But it's not ultimately why I do what I do. It's not ultimately what I need to like myself. Thank God. So, so I'm fine. Thank God. Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult. I did a whole episode about rejection and I cried on air. I mean, it was very, but you know, I think it's important for me, the way I process emotions is like, I cry hysterically, like on the ground, pounding, like asking God why, and then I get over it. But I need to have that like emotional hurricane for 15 to 20 minutes in order to get to the other side. I totally agree. Like there was one list. I won't mention the list, but one, I was like, are you effing kidding me? Your list is like five pages long and you interview me all these times and I'm not on that list. Like what the hell? I was really upset about that one list for maybe right. 72 hours. But now I'm okay. It's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and it's because you probably felt a personal connection with that publication or group or person. Yeah. So I, I totally get that. And you give them a lot of your time. <laughs> right. Okay. So we talked about one of the first things you and I talked about when we were on that, that call waiting for the host to come on was about healthcare and how you know, I, I had this realization when a Canadian business host interviewed me and I go, you know, it must be so much easier for people in Canada to pursue their dreams. He goes, how do you figure? I go, well, cause you don't have to worry about healthcare. 
Because that's like one of the first questions that people ask you when you're about to like make the leap to something else is, well, what are you going to do about healthcare? And so you and I talked about how it not only keeps people from making the leap toward their dreams, but also it keeps people in terrible relationships, sometimes abusive relationships. What do you think the answer would be in our country to solve this issue of health insurance? Is it universal health? I mean, that's what I think it is, but I don't know anything, but I think that's it. <laughs> it is 100% universal health care. Yeah. It, it is very difficult. Of course, it's possible. Anything is possible. I mean, human beings are amazing creatures, should they choose to be. So it's all possible, but it's hard. It takes a lot of energy to pursue one's dreams, achieve one's dreams if you're sick or unwell and dependent. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, I know when I'm making decisions. I mean, there's there's a reason. I Even as I look towards the future, my decision as to whether or not I can even go part-time is health insurance. I need health insurance. I too am in a position where I'm like, oh, there's all this other stuff I want to do, but I kind of can't because I need health insurance and just terrify. I mean, now we're, we're in a pandemic, a pandemic in America, record unemployment, record number of people without health insurance. That is a sin, like the richest nation in the world. And this is what, I mean, every, every system is perfectly designed to get the outcomes it, ha- it does. It's not a coincidence. It is, it is how the system is designed and it must be different if we care about the people who live here, if we want them to be healthy and to have the energy to pursue their dreams. So yeah. And just be better people too. I mean, like people can't be good people when they're in pain. Like it's hard. It's really hard. You can be, but it's way, way, way more difficult. It is. If you're in physical pain or mental pain to be a good person and to make good choices and to think of other people because you're so isolated in your pain that you can't possibly see from out that. It's true. And just the anxiety of it, this like anxiety that's always running in the background. There was an interview I heard with someone recently. He got sick with COVID while he was in Canada. He's an American. And he said, you know, I'm not a citizen there. I just got sick there. I don't live there. They took care of me. Not only did they take care of me in the acute setting, like in the ER when I was admitted to the hospital, they did follow-up phone calls and follow-up appointments. And when I left there, even though I'm not a citizen, my bill was almost nothing. He said, you know, I have insurance in the U.S., If this happened to me in the U.S. with my insurance, I'd be terrified of the bill I would see. So it's just, it's very hard to be well in in that state and to stay well. So there's no doubt in my mind, no doubt, there's no question. We need universal health care. We definitely can do universal health care. We have enough money for it. We would have better health outcomes. It's a choice. Who are we? Who are we as Americans and who do we want to be? we can choose to be better. Yeah. I always find it so odd too that like the people who purport themselves to be the biggest Christians are the ones who are like, but no universal health care. It's like, do you think Jesus would have went up to someone and been like, before I heal you of that leprosy, let me see your PPO. <laughs> exactly. And your co-payment, please. Yeah. $40 <laughs> if you're lucky, right. maybe 70 <laughs> I was going to say, if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have any advice on what we can do as citizens to start, besides calling our senators and stuff, like what can we do to start demanding this? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, I, I think it really does come down to voting. Mm -hmm. Voting and, and political engagement. That is constant. You know, I, I'm really excited about the change in administration because it was really a decision between, like, fascism or not. Hmm. Life and death. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so I'm excited about that. I'm starting to get a little concerned, though, because human nature is such that once it gets comfortable, we'll just kind of stop and be like, we're good. Don't need to be politically engaged anymore. Well, it's like the yoga, right? Exactly. You can't just do it for two weeks. Everything's the same everywhere. Exactly. Like this is a lifestyle. Like all the momentum we were seeing, you know, for awful reasons, like black people were being murdered in the streets and it's a pandemic and people are losing their jobs and people are dying and we're seeing bodies piling up in cities, right? For all the reasons now, it's opened the eyes of many and people don't want to be complacent anymore. That's a positive. And we have to keep it up because this is now a lifestyle if we actually want sustainable change, including healthcare. So we, we can't stop voting and holding our elected officials accountable. We can't stop community organizing. And in fact, we have to do more. Besides just voting, we need to be the leaders as well. Hence, community organizing, running for office. And this is something that can't ever, ever change if we want positive outcomes like universal health care, free education. Taking care of people. Yeah. That's the only way. Yeah. You spoke a little bit about this as we've been talking, but also in the book about the racism within healthcare, both for the patients and for providers. And something I've realized in the past few months is when I moved to LA, I started finding all my doctors on Yelp because I didn't know anyone. And I'm like, ah, oh, I guess I'll just go with whoever has four and a half stars. Yeah. And I've realized I have never had a black doctor. Yeah. Why is that? Well, for one, there's so few, like 2% of doctors, estimates vary, but 2% of doctors are black women, for example. So given those numbers, depending where you live and depending on the healthcare system, we're just not represented. We're just not there. The other thing I will say, it's interesting and awful and horrifying with these algorithms when it comes to like patient satisfaction scores, when it comes to Yelp, the algorithms like Dr. Noble, who wrote a book about it, the algorithms of oppression where because of the way structural racism, structural sexism work, we're less likely to even be represented there because of the racism yeah. with patients and institutions, we are less likely to be promoted. You don't see our pictures on the wall because we're not promoted. Patients bring their own people say implicit, I say it's very explicit, bias to the healthcare setting. And there's been studies done on this, like the same doctors doing the same thing. They'll say, I don't know, like the person of color was just worse or not as smart. But that is their prejudice in action and it affects everything. So for you being oftentimes the only woman, often the only person of color, how have you dealt with that? Like, it seems like such a weight on you to not have anybody to go to right? and to be on your own, you know, and to be more harshly judged. 
for any decision you make, especially the right decisions. Right, right. For any decision, like including just walking into work that day. Yeah. (laughs) That's when it starts. Um, But how I deal with it is knowing that this work is important. When I have patients who, older Black patients, who will say, I'm glad you're here. I haven't had a Black doctor. When they're presented with a treatment plan from the cardiologist who I consulted in the ER, and then once the cardiologist leaves, the patient says to me, can, can we talk about it? Like, I trust you. I want to hear it from you. What, how do you understand it? What do you recommend? Young Latina woman in the emergency department, same. Like, these are the interactions that happen. So I have to be there. Is it harder? Yes, it is. But the goal is the mission, to deliver good care to everyone, and especially people who are traditionally silenced and overlooked and who are hurt by the structural bigotry in medicine that's always existed. It's also important for me to be there because it's not just me. It's not just my one-on-one actions that count, but brings us back to being activists in our own way. You know, that's part of the reason why I speak about these topics in the book. Like when the police wanted me to force an exam on a black man brought in under arrest and I was the only one who stood up. And then I write about it to be part of this larger discussion to expose that, yeah, it's not just, you know, the police are allowed to do what they do because of these larger structures. And we have the same issues in medicine and we need to talk about it and then address it. So that's how I deal with it because it can't paralyze me, right? If I, if, I, if I really just sat and thought about it without having a plan to address it, it would be depressing. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. But no, I act on it every day with patients and then in, in other ways where I feel like I can be effective in my activism. So then it's worthwhile. So then it's just, it's part of my life work and I focus on the work. Yeah. Those interactions that you brought up are some of my favorite in the book. I love that you had such clear pivot points in your life. And when you went to the ER with your brother Mm -hmm. and you knew in that moment that you were going to do that, could you take us through that moment of your life and what it felt like to know that was your calling? Mm -hmm. Well, it's important for me to discuss that because when I was younger, there was so much instability, so much pain. And so I discuss one, one, just like one time when My father physically attacked my mother. My brother was intervening to try and save her and and also prevent any violence to come to anyone else. And my father bit my brother's thumb. And I remember thinking, how savage an act, like for a human being to bite another human being, to purposely cause an injury. And I remember thinking that like, if he's capable of this, and if this is capable in my home, I'm not safe here. And it's just not going to be a time that I will be safe here. Contrasting that to when I took my brother to the hospital to get help for his injury and seeing all manner of life just converge in this space, whether it's, it's a homeless man sitting in the, in the waiting room just trying to have respite from the elements. And he did for a time. A little girl brought in by her father with a cut, coming in crying, weeping, 
then when she leaves, she's happy, smiling. She's all fixed now, happy with her dad or someone being rolled in on a gurney with CPR in progress. Don't know if he did well or not, but I know that somehow his family was going to have to find a way forward without him, if he expired, in this next phase of their life. So seeing all this, seeing this place of chaos where they find order to help people, I thought, well, I know what it's like to have chaos. And now I can see like in a really tangible way that it is possible to heal Mm -hmm. even in the midst of this. And that's what I want for myself. And I want to be like one of these people who is helping people coming in broken, battered, I want to help them so that they too can find healing. You talk a lot about forgiveness in the book and how forgiving is really, it's for us. You know, there's that Buddha quote. It's like hating someone else is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Yes. (laughs) And that's what I got from your musings and and feelings on forgiveness. And there's that call you have with your dad. Mm -hmm. Do you feel you've gotten to a place where you've fully forgiven him? I have. Again, it's it's a practice because that conversation was not a one and done. And while I've changed a lot and grown, everyone does so at their own pace. And when I say pace, I mean within this lifetime and then in other lifetimes. Yes. (laughs) Right? You're like, ah, you're going to have to come back. Exactly. Exactly. One of these lifetimes is going to work out. But (laughs) so while I've grown a lot, we are not at a place where we could be fully engaged in each other's life and it be a positive thing for me. (laughs) So, so yes, I've forgiven him and part of my growth and part of that act of forgiving is not allowing him to be manipulative or toxic in my life. That's part of it. That is part of me, like blessing it and letting it go. And if he's going to have a chance at, at healing and evolving even more, I need to not be part of any dysfunction. Absolutely. And for someone out there who maybe had a similar situation where a parent or a primary caregiver was abusive, either physically, mentally, emotionally, or all of the above, what would be your blessing for them on how to get to a similar place to where you're at right now? My blessing would be, my hope would be for them to know, and whether it's a parent or partner or anyone, that love and codependence are very different things. Mm. They're, they're very different things. And a codependent relationship has nothing to do with love. That's what I would say. And that there's no person who will complete you And that when we get to the point where we love ourselves and so then are capable of loving another person, whoever that person is, we will do so in a way that creates freedom, freedom for ourselves and freedom for the other person. And then however that looks, like if that means the person will be in your life or not in your life is okay. Your book is called The Beauty in Breaking. What is the beauty in breaking or what has it been for you? For me, it's been 
It's been understanding that, you know, I, I use the metaphor of Kintsukori or Kintsugi. I'm, I'm sure I pronounce Kintsugi. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know I am mispronouncing it and I am terribly sorry and I will try to become a better person. So, but I, but I talk about that metaphor and that's what it means to me. So in this Japanese art form, ancient Japanese art form, if pottery is broken, falls and something happens to it, it's repaired. It's not just discarded, but it's repaired and purposely done so with an amalgam of precious metals. So whether that's platinum or yellow gold, so that the breaks are highlighted. And the thinking is it doesn't romanticize trauma or anything, but that this is a vessel that has been changed by life and the mutability of life. And for its mending, it is that much more beautiful and valuable. And I feel we are the same. If we grow, if we heal, if we mend ourselves, we'll be that much more resilient and that much more beautiful. Mm, more beautiful than before. <laughs> yes. I love that. One of the goals of the show is to help people take fear out of the driver's seat of their life. So, you know, like fear may always be there, but you can at least put it shotgun or in the back seat. Right. Sometimes in the trunk. Sometimes in the trunk. On the hood. If you're lucky, on the hood. Get out of the car. Yeah. Where are you at currently in your relationship with fear and how do you work on taking it out of the driver's seat? I acknowledge it and then I just make my decision anyway because I'm a firm believer. I'm a firm believer. I do what I got to do and I pick up the pieces later. Love it. <laughs> that's just what, that's what I decide. Like even like, for example, with, with a breakup or dating. Yeah, Sure. Maybe I, I, maybe I felt I loved you desperately and was deeply connected, but if I got to go, I got to go and I will, I will cry on the floor in fetal position and figure it out later. And so that's how I approach all of my decisions, especially if it's scary and anxiety provoking job switch, career decision. I have a couple of ones coming up that I'm so afraid of, but the important thing for me to do for myself is to acknowledge, yes, this is scary. Yes, I am afraid. What do I have to do? Okay, do that and deal with it later. For example, I had to give a talk. Like one of my first talks, I was terrified about it. And I I asked myself, okay, before I made the decision to say yes to it, I said, if I wasn't afraid, what would I do? Okay, I would just do it, get ready and do it. So I said, yes. So there are, there are times where I literally say, Michelle, if you weren't afraid, what would you do? And then I do that thing and work through the fear. I think that's amazing advice. That's what, when people say like, what's your advice about moving to LA? I'm like, do it and think about it later. (laughs) (laughs) You can cry driving over the hill. That's what I did. You're like, what did I do with my life? This was so stupid. (laughs) You'll figure it out. And if you don't, if you're lucky enough to have a loving family, you can always go home. If you don't have a loving family, that would take you back. And that's a different question. But if you do just do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So this is my final question. It's a two parter. I want to get back to little Michelle, because I believe creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. And I'm wondering if you and young Michelle, whatever age you think of her as, were standing in the same room together. What do you think she would say to you now, seeing what you've done to take care of her and heal and be an amazing healer yourself? What do you think she would say to you now and why? Oh my gosh, that almost makes me cry. Because I think little Michelle, and I immediately went to when I was seven years old, 
and received the message that from what seemed to be at the time and still so now, this, this voice that I felt and feel was an angel that came to me and said, you're going to be okay and you're going to survive. And your family, the people I thought of my family, I was close to like my brother, my mother, my sister will survive. And you have to, because you are going to go on to help many people. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that I wanted to feel safe and I never did. So that was the message I needed, the message I wanted most. And when I heard this from this angel, I believed it. I knew it had to be true. And I didn't know what she meant by helping a lot of people, but I also knew it had to be true. And I felt so much joy in that moment. And it anchored me and buttressed me throughout the rest of my life. And I believed that little girl and her guardian at the time for so long. So I think little Michelle would say to me now, I told you so. (laughs) Oh, I got chills. And what would you say to her and why? I would say, thank you. And I love you. And I got you. Thank you, Michelle. I love you. And I'm so grateful that you listened to that angel and that you shared your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to my guest, Dr. Michelle Harper. For more info on Michelle, you can go to her website, michelleharper.com. Follow her at michelleharpermd on Instagram and check out her book, The Beauty and Breaking, wherever good books are found. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. You can follow her at Liz Full. And thank you. If you liked what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow the show on Spotify, share the show with a friend, and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, tag Michelle at Michelle Harper MD so she can share it too. My wish for you this week is that you learn deep self-trust. I'm really starting to believe that that's the key to making authentic and healthy decisions in life. Let's do it. I love you, and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.